Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It's election eve. Can you believe it? We're actually here. We're almost going to find out who is president of the United States. We're probably not going to know officially tomorrow night. We could, I guess, have a very good indication. Certainly, uh, hopefully within a couple of days, we will know that. But uh, tomorrow is election day. We are on the brink. We're brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Today, we've got good, bad, and crazy martinis all related to the election, of course, Jim. And the good martini is pretty much what I just said. We're finally here. You know, it it seems like it was only three and a half years ago that this election started. And it is because John Delaney announced for president in the spring of 2017. That obviously proved to be a huge advantage for him going into the primaries. Uh, uh, Ultimately, uh, the big names uh, lasted longer than the others. Uh, Pretty much who we expected, with some exceptions. Biden, we kind of had as the favorite all along. Uh, Warren hung in there. Harris did not do well in the actual primary, but now she's uh, the running mate. And Bernie did pretty well, just as we suspected, until everybody coalesced around Joe Biden. So, Jim, we've got Trump barnstorming four to five states a day here the last few days. Uh, Biden and Harris are in Ohio and Pennsylvania today. It's all coming to a frenetic finish on the campaign trail. Many of the votes, I think we're closing in on 100 million people already voted. Uh, Tomorrow's actually the official election day. And we're finally here. Obviously, people are going to be much happier or much more discouraged, depending on what the results are. But to have this exhausting campaign behind us is a good thing in and of itself. You know, we're almost there, dear listeners. And that is the good martini. We don't know when we're going to have a winner. My suspicion is that by, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. of, you know, Tuesday night heading into Wednesday morning, If we don't have a winner, we'll have a pretty good sense of how things are going. I think Florida will be very critical, very decisive. I think North Carolina is not too far behind it. And both of them, particularly because of the high early turnout, the fact that Florida allows them to count the votes uh, before Election Day, they should have a pretty good sense of who won in Florida. And they could both end up being very close. Maybe we won't know who won those states. But if we know Trump won both those, then he's a good chunk of the way to get into 270 electoral votes. If he doesn't win those it's pretty much all she wrote. Now, um, I'm going I'm to get a little spiritual at this point, Greg. If you give me a moment just to quote Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, or maybe you prefer the song version. But the bottom line is there is a time to campaign and then there's a time to govern. And I kind of feel like that time to govern has been shrinking in each cycle and that time to campaign just grows and expands to exceed, you know, become nearly a two-year process. Back in 2007, I believe it was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were announcing in January. I went back and I checked. Okay, so lots of people announced them early. Delaney didn't really matter. When were the first debates in each one of these cycles? And I kind of went back and I checked. The what's One year that struck me as extraordinarily early was the 2004 election cycle. First Democratic debate was May 3rd, 2003. Uh, if you feel like this year was a little earlier, what was you know also felt early, it wasn't quite as early, but it was June 26, 2019. So it was you know a good six months before uh, any ballots were cast in Iowa or New Hampshire. And then if you want the absolute earliest, technically 2007, it was April 26 was the first Democratic debate of the 2008 presidential debate season. I would like to see 
you know, we don't have to start the midterm elections next week. We're going to have a winner by next week. I would like to have us not start the, you know, those of us who cover elections, you know, maybe get into candidate recruitment. Maybe you start looking at it. You start thinking about it. But it would be really nice to have a governing season where we'd actually focus on passing laws, actually focus on what the people in government are supposed to do instead of immediately turning around and starting to worry about how they're going to win their next one. Uh, presidential elections have become these two-year ordeals. They spend enormous amounts of money, enormous amounts of resources, and we're forgetting the actual purpose of government, which is governing. Anyway, that's my, uh, that's my rant. That's my hope for the coming year, uh, Greg. No matter how tomorrow turns out, we actually spend some time discussing what the laws ought to change, what we want to do, push in one direction or the other, pay attention to appointees because personnel is policy, and not just turn around and begin fundraisers for the next seemingly endless cycle of, of focusing on elections instead of you know the actual governing the government is supposed to do. Jim, I just want to clarify for anyone who might be tempted to, to comment on this, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 does not literally say there's a time to campaign and a time to govern, so we, rea- we realize that, <laughs> but I think Jim's point is extraordinarily well taken here. Jim, I remember back— That one isn't 2 Corinthians, uh, Greg. <laughs> I I do remember, I think it was the 92 campaign, and they were still wondering at Labor Day of 91 whether Mario Cuomo would still get in. So, I mean, we've definitely backed up to the point now where people are starting exploratory committees between November of the midterm elections and the beginning of the next year. People are announcing formal campaigns in the beginning, uh, nearly two years ahead of time. And it wasn't that long ago. It was about a generation ago where some people didn't even get in until the very end of the year before the election, just uh, a few months before the caucuses. My, how things have changed and probably not for the better. But we are in the permanent campaign season now. Uh, I hope that uh, there is a time to cool down. But uh, given the way things have gone the last several cycles, I'd be surprised if that actually happened. But uh, a nice surprise to add to your podcast lineup could be the Jordan Harbinger Show, different kind of sponsor for the Three Martini Lunch these days. Apple named the Jordan Harbinger Show one of its best of 2018, and the podcast is simply aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. And and boy, right now, where uh, if you don't think exactly like someone else thinks, you're basically considered an outcast. It's critical to think for yourself, and and the Jordan Harbinger Show can help with that. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. Uh, The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by both the feds and the mafia. That's almost like a Jack Bauer type thing. He never dealt with the mob, but he was always dealing with (laughs) terrorists and, of course, the government uh, officials trying to rein him in. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners folks pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. You know, you won't find just one set of viewpoints on Jordan's show. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or maybe just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. 
I hopped on Jordan's website and he had a couple of guests who said, wow, you actually got me to say things to you that I've never done in these more rote interviews. One of them was Bob Saget. So if you've ever really wanted to know how Bob Saget's mind works, uh, there you go. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, let's talk about what's going to be happening in major metropolitan areas tomorrow. The preparations for such are already happening in in, uh, most cities around the country. This is Axios. Ahead of Election Day, activists in the nation's capital are training demonstrators, forming rapid reaction teams, and organizing events that are expected to draw large crowds. Multiple groups led by Black Lives Matter and Shutdown D.C. are planning an eight-hour event at Black Lives Matter Plaza, one block from the White House. Uh, An organizer for Shutdown D.C. said her group was rehearsing, quote, election meltdown simulations that include indefinitely occupying certain public spaces and rushing to intervene in attempts to intimidate voters at polling places or attempts to seize ballots. As a result, uh, cities are boarding up their storefronts. This is Forbes now in Washington. Businesses around the White House are boarding up as a precaution. I believe there's a non-scalable fence going up around the White House. Nationally, Nordstrom's and Tiffany's told the New York Times they had plans to board up some of their stores. The National Retail Federation told Forbes, get this, it is providing de-escalation training and extra security consultants. And the Macy's flagship Midtown store in New York will also be boarded up. Other cities doing very similar things. And so, Jim, as evidenced by who's planning these get-togethers in Washington and elsewhere. These people aren't uh, boarding up and protecting their windows because conservatives are going to be taken to the streets. No, and in today's morning jolt, I uh, I take Ann Applebaum to the woodshed over one of her recent comments. But yeah, it wasn't just, you know, her. uh, Wolf Blitzer, a figure who we've ended up talking about seemingly with surprising frequency on this podcast. Yesterday, he said, I never thought I'd see so many buildings here in the nation's capital boarded up on the eve of a presidential election in anticipation of possible unrest. And it's not just in D.C. It's happening in New York, Los Angeles, and elsewhere around the country. So sad. And quite a few folks kind of jumped on Wolf Blitz over that and saying, gee, do you think CNN's coverage of rioting and vandalism and violence earlier this year has anything to do with the fact that we now just expect there to be urban unrest on election night? I don't know if you can necessarily draw a straight line from one to the other, but I think it's very clear to say that when we did see that violent unrest earlier this year, that it was not a unified chorus of denunciation uh, of this. That there were a lot of people who made excuses. Remember the, you know, in praise of rioting uh, NPR interview, and and there were there were quite a few folks who seemed to say, well, it's bad, but and, and you know, as Sir Mixalot said, you know, there's always going to be a big but. There's going to be some sort of sense of, well, it's morally justified or it's understandable or it's a reflection of political tension. They find all kinds of ways to, if not directly justify it, to explain it, to say that, well, there's some moral dimension to this that is different. Now, I should point out that twice last month, downtown Los Angeles had some pretty significant outbursts of violence and riots. And it was primarily about not about the race of Trump versus Biden but about the race between uh, the Dodgers versus the Tampa Bay Rays and the Lakers against the, Craig, who were the Lakers playing? The Heat, Miami Heat. The Heat, that's right, Miami Heat. Uh, LA won both, and lo and behold, they had rioting. It's almost an unfortunate uh, tradition in the United States 
that the city that wins the championship usually gets some drunken hooligans running around who end up smashing windows or doing something like that. Um, there's no political dimension to that. You know, what I think what this teaches us is there are a whole bunch of people in this world who just want to smash things and they're just looking for an excuse. And if their uh, candidate wins, they will smash windows. If their candidate loses, they will smash windows. If their team wins, they will smash windows. There is some element of this violence that is not politically driven at all. And it's just simply people who like to commit crimes and they see an excuse. But I think it's also safe to say that, look, clearly um, Black Lives Matter is more likely to have folks on the left than it is on the right. Uh, I talk a bit about the arguments about outside agitators and, and agent provocateurs and people who are going into this to try to stir things up. The Boogaloo Boys or Boogaloo Boys, as they say. By the way, Boogaloo Boys, they want to overthrow the government. They hate cops. And in one case, they actually tried to smuggle arms to Hamas. Greg, does that sound pro-Trump to you? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, does any of that say, okay, I keep seeing them described as a right-wing militia. What is right-wing about any of those things? Right. So anyway, so there's, so there is, you know, a, a people say if you did a survey of every single person who was arrested for rioting, vandalism, arson, violent assault, or anything else for the entirety of the year in any of these uprises in these cities, Kenosha, Lancaster, uh, Minneapolis, put them all together. Could you find some Trump voters? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You get a large enough group, you're probably going to find somebody who who uh, either is on the right or voted for Trump that year. You know. But by and large, most of these folks are going to be on the left to the extent they have any political philosophy at all. And I suspect it's because they feel like the Democratic Party is at least, if not sympathetic to it, can explain it away, can see it as justifiable rage over a Trump provocation. That was the whole core of the Ann Applebaum column today. It's like, well, this or, or, or a, a tweet. It was like, you know, look, this. can you believe Trump has done this? Well, it's not Trump who's running through the streets smashing things. You don't see people with red. The only person who sees people with red caps yelling, you know, assaulting people, yelling, this is MAGA country, are Jesse Smollett in Chicago. That's the one case we have. <laughs> you can probably remember how that one shook out. So it is deeply frustrating. There are some people in this world who, when they see violence, if it's right wing violence, they say Republicans inspired this. And Greg, if it's left-wing violence, their explanation is Republicans provoked this. It never works the other way around, apparently. Yes, it's just like government shutdowns. No matter who's in what position, it's always the Republicans' fault. Uh, and Jim, you know, the, the conventional wisdom on the left, and certainly among uh, CNN, MSNBC, which of course is the left, uh, is that, oh, if you want this to stop, and Biden has said this too, you need to vote for Joe Biden. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, the next time there's a police-involved shooting that in one of these cities that... Uh, inflames tensions. Doesn't matter if Joe Biden's president. And if Joe Biden doesn't do exactly what Antifa and BLM and all these groups do, if he does get elected, they're going to go crazy and they're going to do the exact same thing again. So you think that uh, Joe Biden is somehow the magic elixir to get everybody to calm down? Not going to happen. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is, so tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to Leave a comment, a review, and subscribe. All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And now it's just time for some fun. This is a poll from the New York Times and Siena College. That means people paid money 
for pollsters to ask this question. Because after you hear this, you're going to wonder why people actually spent money on this. But, hey, it's kind of fun. It's, it's our crazy martini today. They actually went through 18 battleground states. I'm not sure there are 18 battleground states, but we'll, we'll give them that premise. Went through 17,000 likely voters. And then they compiled all the ones that voted for either Trump or Biden. They threw out everybody that didn't vote for one, of the, one or the other. And then they decided to break it down by first name. Which person by first name voted most often for Trump and which voted most often for Biden? We have the whole spectrum here. So Richard leads the way for Trump voters, 64% to 36. Then Thomas at 61. William, 58. Uh, the highest among the ladies is Nancy at uh, 57. I'm guessing Pelosi wasn't one of them, but you never know. It's a secret ballot. Uh, Michael at 56, along with Robert and James. So there you go. Uh, uh, James Garrity. Uh, uh, that's uh, your name is uh, 56% Trump. Uh, Jennifer also at 56. That's a big name, by the way, for our generation. Everybody went to school with at least half a dozen Jennifers, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then John, David, and Linda are all leaning in the Trump column. Joseph and Christopher split evenly at 50-50. And then uh, for the pro-Biden side, Mary, 52, Susan, 52, Elizabeth, 53, Patricia, 54, Lisa, 54, Barbara, 58. And the most pro-Biden, Jim, it's got to be. It's got to be 2020. It's Karen, of course, 60% to 40%. How perfect. Yeah. Now, if you are a listener to this program and your name is Karen and you are tired of people uh, associating you with the stereotype of the the nosy neighbor, uh, the lecturing you know person who comes along and tells you your mask isn't right or something, then I apologize in advance. My colleague Jay Nordlinger wrote a, a very eloquent column about the inherent injustice of this name being selected as the label for this type of personality. With that caveat in place, is anybody really that surprised? <laughs> it it just you knew the Karens would be very heavily Biden. You knew, and the fact that it's not just you know it's just a little bit above the Barbaras and all the others. Pretty interesting. By the way, Gregory, I, I bet you you've never been so glad that your name is not one of the ten most common in the United States. <laughs> I'm used to it, and yes, that's good. Yeah, because you see a lot of people who are shortening the Richards to uh, uh, to to the common abbreviation and saying, oh, those names vote for Trump and all the other. Karen's vote for Biden or something like that. It is interesting. I do kind of wonder if certain names steer you in a particular direction in life. Right? You know, Greg has daughters. I have sons. I don't usually mention my son's names. I'll just say I didn't name either one of them Ichabod. <laughs> I think if you're if you name your son Ichabod, there's just a guarantee at some point he's going to be chased by a headless horseman. Right. Um, you know, Irving Schmidlap, you know, Irving is, you know, if Irv, okay, you can be kind of laid back, but Irving, you know, no offense to any Irvings out there, but chance, that's a very, very formal name. It's very, you know, uh, old school, distinguished kind of name. So I have a feeling you know, when you name and, you know, having written a couple of novels, no, this is not me secretly plugging the book. Uh, you want to have your character's name fit them. And people have observed that let's say in your book, you had a, uh, a Midwestern senator whose focus is on cutting the budget and cutting welfare programs or something like that. Greg, don't you think a, a welfare-cutting senator from the Midwest would be named something like, I don't know, um, Bob Dole? <laughs> Sometimes people in life, their name just fits who they are. And you start to wonder if like their name kind of set them on their path. So I don't know, maybe if you're a Richard, you're just naturally more likely to end up towards the uh, Republican side. I do notice my boss is Richard Lowry. Um, but also there's a question of like, if you're a Karen, you know, maybe you're just destined to, uh, 
end up on the left side of the spectrum, or at least, you know, not destined, but, you know, more likely to, judging by the numbers of this year. Just amazing how much things change in a relatively short period of time. I remember a little while after I graduated from high school, my dad said, uh, go grab my yearbook. See how many first names uh, you in my class that you see in your class. There was one. And now I see my really? kids in school. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, now I see kids in school with my young daughters. And, you know, it's, it's Jaden and Cooper and, and all these other names that never existed back in the, in the 80s when we were in school. So uh, it's just, just amazing. The time I coached youth soccer because they were <laughs> desperate for coaches, I'm pretty sure we had a Caden, Braden, Jaden, Aiden, which made this kind of confusing. And uh, we, we did not do terribly well in yesterday's flag football game. My younger son lost both, but they were respectable. They're better than the Jets, shall we say. Um, and I just have to notice, I think every other player, I think every player on the opposing team was named after a state capital. Um, this was, we, we definitely had at least one Austin. Uh, we had one Lincoln, and I'm fairly sure there was at least two Madisons there. Oh, yeah, Madisons. So I, I felt like I was learning a lot of geography as I was watching the other teams score. <laughs> Yes, I believe at one point you mentioned that there were most of the major cities in Texas were also uh, represented. Yeah, Austin was. Yeah, I kept waiting for you know. Oh, oh, here comes his little brother, San Antonio. <laughs> oh man, good stuff, Jim. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow on Election Day. One more day, Greg. One more day. Good luck, everyone. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about the Jordan Harbinger Show. Go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe. Please subscribe to our podcast as well, the Three Martini Lunch, of course, at Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we're always grateful for those five-star ratings and those kind reviews. Remember, you can also get us on those home devices. You just have to say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. Don't forget to vote tomorrow if you haven't already. And we'll see you Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.